This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Good afternoon to you. I'm Jason Kong, back at it with Mary Lucas with Transitions Life Care. Mary, how are you today? I'm back. We made it through the holidays. I've I've learned a lot over the holidays. I've taken a lot of things that we have learned on the, the show into effect over the holidays. It's been a lot of self-care, and I am back. <laughs> well, it's, it's wonderful to have you back. We had a a wonderful show last week. Betsy Barton did a wonderful job filling in your stead, although it's your big shoes to fill on anyone's <laughs> behalf when it comes to you, Mary. But we have a wonderful show lined up today, and we are going to be talking about death doulas. And to have a thoughtful conversation on that, we are pleased to welcome onto the program Jane Dorman. She is a end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings in Durham. Jane, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. This is a topic that we hear about, uh, and, and it's becoming more and more uh, prevalent, and, and more and more people are talking about death doula services. So, Jane, let's just start off with the basics. What is a death doula? And, you know, we also hear death midwife. Is that interchangeable? Is it the same thing? Um, tell us a little bit about what a death doula is. Sure. Um, it is the same as a midwife, though that's a, a less commonly used term. But the reason that's used is because the death doula model originated from the birth doula model, hmm. uh, being a birth midwife. Um, and what a death doula does is I am a non-medical professional who assists terminally ill people and their support systems in preparing for the end of life. Um, and that can involve so many facets. So for one, there's a logistical aspect, so I can help with saying, here's all the paperwork you should have locked down. Do you need help downsizing? Do you have um, after-death plans, like plots? Uh, Do you have care services lined up? Things like that. On the personal uh, side, I help with things like life review um, and legacy work, uh, bucket list items, and overall being an objective third party that listens and guides the person um, towards what they want. And then there's a spiritual aspect to it, if that's how you, some people prefer to label it, which is um, planning for a vigil, which is your actively dying phase, um, making sure any ceremonies you want to have, any rituals happen, um, and kind of exploring and supporting belief systems. Wow, that's a lot. I can imagine yeah. <laughs> we weaved into a lot of the things that you just talked about. There's a lot of family dynamics and, and things that you work on with not just the person who is facing death themselves, but also their families as well, I can imagine. Yes, and, you know, one of the huge things that I'm encountering is um, as the older generation starts to pass away, you have so many adult children, uh, you know, I guess you'd call them millennials now, who are entering the caretaker role, who have never seen somebody uh, decline and die before. And there are so many ways in which um, that that new role of caretaker, they need support, and more importantly, they need the education. They need to understand what happens leading up to the actively dying phase and what actively dying looks like, because as my favorite hospice nurse, Barbara Karn, says, we do not die like we do in the movies. Um, and so many people are unprepared for that. And, um, you know, that's where the dual role, I think, is increasingly important. 
That's a that's that's very interesting. I I'm, I'm going to relate this back to my my own personal experience. Recently, my grandfather passed, as some some of you know. Um, and I was talking to my brother, who's a millennial, and um, towards the end, he was like, "Well, why aren't we taking him to the hospital? Like, why why wouldn't we do that right now? Um, he has an infection and he has a UTI. Why wouldn't why wouldn't we treat that? Um, and and on hospice and and where we were and my grandfather's wishes were not to do that. Um, and it was very interesting interesting to explain and talk with him about it and um, and his feelings about that and not seeing death before and what was going on. It was very, very difficult. So I can imagine your role would really help in that situation. Yeah. And, you know, it's really, really hard for us to get out of the the fix-it mindset, especially Mm -hmm. in a situation that's medical. Death has become in our culture a very medicalized event versus a rite of passage and a personal and community event. And it's hard to, to not say, hey, um, so, you know, this person has a fever, which is actually very common in the last three days of mm-hmm. end of life. Um, you know, we have to do something about the fever. And it's kind of just centering everyone and bringing them back and saying, this is a natural process. Mm-hmm. What's happening is supposed to happen. And by doing that, it allows people to be so much more present and to be there and to get out of panic mode. Um, yeah, and it, it did take some practice, and having a guide there really helps. Definitely. What are some of the other benefits of having a, a death doula and navigating the end-of-life process? Well, first I'm going to say the objective third-party aspect, and also doulas who have gone through training are trained to have conversations in a certain way and to actively listen. What I mean by conversations in a certain way is I do not come to the table with an agenda. I am a facilitator for the dying person to figure out what is best for them because they know what's best for them. So asking a lot of open-ended questions. Um, not A lot of people have tendency to want to fill the silence by offering advice or responding with something. And sometimes it's really helpful to just be silent and to just listen and you know what we would now call hold space for that person. Um, so that's really helpful. And then, you know, a lot of people who come to me have, have mostly just received a terminal diagnosis, one that they weren't expecting. And the medical system is very hard to navigate as a healthy person. Mm-hmm. So if you're in the mindset of someone who's just told that they have a very limited time, it's overwhelming. There, you know, because you want to think about, well, if you have adult children, what do I need to do to set them up? What paperwork do I need? But also, what do I need for me? And tackling all those things at once uh, alone without familiarity of how to move forward is really overwhelming and doulas can help with that. That is that is very important. I, you know, in the hospice industry, which is um, where transitions is and where where I work, it's something that you know we're faced with often. Is that overwhelming, um, you know, moment when we reach people? A lot of the times, it's a family or the loved one who is facing the terminal illness. is It's just a lot to take on, and I can imagine having that death doula in place would help navigate that a little bit more outside of the medical um, space of of hospice and palliative care and, and those services. Uh, you mentioned, sure. go ahead. No, no, that's it. <laughs> I, I, you mentioned the training and certifications for a death doula. What What is entailed with um, being certified as a death doula and what are the kind of trainings that you go through? 
So I would really say the flagship one is is the first one I did, uh, the International End-of-Life Doula Association, referred to as ANELDA. Uh, they really spearheaded this movement. Um, it's part of what's called the positive death movement. I received the training from them, um, and then I immediately went into hospice volunteer work to get experience. And since then, I've uh, been certified by the University of Vermont Larner College of Medicine, which also offers a certificate. Um, and there are other organizations that are uh, very prominent as well, including NEDA, N-E-D-A, which is the National End-of-Life Doula Alliance, um, many former nurses or current nurses, and they focus on training but also are very ethics-focused, the ethics of being a doula. Um, and then, you know, there, there's those are the three main ones as I see them. There are lots of other ones, like the Conscious Dying Institute, um, but also really essential to training is just boots on the ground experience, which nothing is going to replace. Do you need that experience? We are speaking with Jane Dornman. She is a end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings Durham, and we're going to continue our conversation with Jane right after this. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF with your hosts, Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk traffic. Don't forget you can go to transitionslifecare.org to find more resources available to you online, transitionslifecare.org. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas. Our guest on the line is Jane Dornman, and she is a end-of-life doula, and we are talking about death doulas. Definitely. You know, I want to go all the way back to the beginning here, Jane. I, I never asked, how did you decide to become a death doula? What sparked your interest in this and, and your background leading up to this? What brought you to to want to be certified as a death doula and into practice? Uh, so most people that I speak to come to this in one of two ways. Either they experience what you would call a bad death in their family, or they are a hospice nurse who sees mm-hmm. the whole in the system, and I am the former. Um, in 2009, my mother uh, was hospitalized. She would die two weeks later. And in those two weeks, you know, I had no experience with death or dying at all. Uh, I maybe got to speak to a doctor once or twice um, to try and understand what was going on. And it was actually a nurse who pulled me aside and said, you understand your mother is not leaving here. Mm. And I had not understood that from my conversation with the doctor because a lot of doctors are not trained in having end-of-life conversations. Mm -hmm. And throughout those two weeks, you know, the staff did an amazing job, um, but I really didn't understand what was happening to my mother's body. Mm -hmm. Um, And it caused a lot of upset. And, um, you know, I because she had flipped into a coma, I wasn't able to have important conversations with her that I would have liked to have. Mm -hmm. And so walking away from that, you know, I... It took me years to kind of think of, well, what went wrong and is this how people die Mm -hmm. today? And then when I gave birth to my son, 
I, the staff was great, but again, you know, people weren't communicating with me. I didn't know what questions to ask. Um, there were complications and I didn't know how to advocate for myself. And it was very much a, a mirror of the experience of the death of my mother, you know, and I had been advised to get a birth doula, but I, <laughs> I poo pooed that saying, well, that's, you know, too new agey for me. I could have really used the birth doula um, <laughs> in hindsight. And so I kind of went down a rabbit hole, I guess, um, looking at movements where people were recognizing these patterns and trying to fix them. And that's how I found Anelda and did the training. That's really interesting. The connection also between birth doulas and death doulas is is interesting. I mean, you come into this world and you go out of this world um, in a way that's actually strikingly similar. Um, and um, and doulas being able to navigate that is something that's um, is an interesting thing to to think about. Yeah, we labor out of this world just like we labor into it. Mm-hmm. So, talk to me a little bit about how death doulas and the services that you offer differs from what hospice care offers? Well, the primary differentiator I see is time. So if you're uh, on home hospice, which means you're on hospice, but you're remaining in your own home and hospice staff is coming to you, on average, you have a nurse come to see you about three hours a week. That's a lot of hours where a nurse is not there. Um, and it falls on your caretakers or it will fall on you financially to arrange additional care. Um, and the reason for that in part is one, there's a lot of people who need hospice services and there's only so many people who can offer them. Mm-hmm. And number two, this is a Medicare funded model. So, you know, hospices have to pay attention as a business, whether they're profit or nonprofit on the hours. A nurse cannot sit there endlessly with a patient they have other patients to see. And so doulas are really, um, because we don't fit into that Medicare model, we're not on the clock, so to speak. Mm -hmm. I can sit there and talk with you about your advanced directives all day if you want me to. Mm -hmm. While there are social workers at hospice who assist with that kind of stuff, they really can't get into the weeds with you and your family and have these you know, conversations that may go hours and hours. Mm -hmm. They will tell you, hey, you need this paperwork, but, you know, doing the rest of the legwork is up to you. The other thing is I do a lot of legacy work. So people want to do legacy projects. They want to think about things they want to leave behind for their loved ones. Um, Hospice is not going to sit with you and and come up with a legacy project and help you complete it. Mm Um, so th- those are the main differentiators. Um, you know, I sit vigil, which means when you're actively dying, I will sit with you and make sure that the environment that you chose to have during that time is stays that way. Um, and that's just not something that hospice can offer uh, on a large scale. That's very important and something definitely to think about. You you talked a little bit about the Medicare benefit of hospice. Um, what is when you talk when you think about death doulas? How is this covered? How is it paid for? Um, and what does the charge look like on a death doula service? So the what is the charge is all over the map. Mm-hmm. Um, we are not reimbursed by insurance or Medicare. Um, so this is a private cost. There are many doulas who do this pro bono for some families. There are doulas who do it uh, on an hourly fee or a package fee, um, and there are doulas who do it on a sliding scale. So I operate on a donations only model 
because I want this to be available to everybody, mm-hmm. um, and my donation level is capped. Mm-hmm. And so right now, if, if you're looking in the Durham-Raleigh area, I would say you could find a doula ranging between $50 an hour to $100 an hour, and that would all be out of pocket or free. Gotcha. That's very helpful. When should someone think about calling a death doula? You know, you, you're sitting in the doctor's office, you get a terminal cancer diagnosis, just just using example. Um, when is the right time to involve a death doula if you're, you know, looking at six months of life left? Is it the appropriate time or do you call sooner or, I mean, later in the process? What's the appropriate time to, to get someone like you involved? So what's interesting about that question is at the beginning of the dual movement, which was years ago, before many people heard of it, the idea was that once you're on hospice, which is typically you have six months or less to live, you should engage with a doula. But we're finding that that's not enough time. And the reason for that is because people are entering hospice too late. It's it's not common to be on hospice for six full months anymore. People delay it. Um, and then also... I would like people to come in earlier. So if you have a chronic disease, like kidney disease, and you're in palliative care, I say engage a doula at the palliative care stage. Um, But really, people can engage a doula anytime. You don't have to be terminally ill. If you're uh, an older person and you're thinking, hey, I really need to get my paperwork in order, or um, I'm really looking back at my life and I want to leave something behind, but I don't know what necessarily Start working with the doula. It doesn't have to be at the 11th hour. But my biggest piece of advice is that um, not to wait until you really start declining. Because if you want to do things uh, like legacy projects, that does take some time and energy. And a lot of people, um, you know, have these ideas of things they want to do, but then they find after engaging a doula too far down the road that they just don't have the energy to do it. Um, which is which is a shame. So as early as you can is the answer. That's great. One last quick question for you, and this is my favorite question right now. What does it mean to have a good death? That is a completely subjective <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, of, of, you know, there's a there's a lot we can't control about death, but mm-hmm. you know, working with a doula brings back what little control you have. Mm-hmm. And so, I would say a good death is one where you and your caretakers are educated on what that road to death is going to look like, from you know, symptom perspective to emotional aspect, um, and then putting in place the controls you can. Do you want to have silk sheets in your dying bed and burn a lavender candle? You got it. Mm -hmm. Having those kind of things in place and saying, this is my moment, this is my biggest event, and embracing that, I think, is a good death. That's wonderful perspective. She is Jane Dorman, an end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings Durham. Jane, if folks want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, You can go to my website, which is www.peacefulcrossingsdurham.com. You can contact me there. Easy enough. Peacefulcrossingsdurham.com. Again, Jane Dorman, an end-of-life doula with Peaceful Crossings Durham. Thank you so much for your time today, Jane. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic.
This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. 60 minutes devoted to giving you all the information you need when caring for a loved one with Mary Lucas and Jason Kong. If you have questions for the show, you can email agingmatters at transitionslifecare.org. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I'm Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas representing Transitions Life Care, and we've got a, a great subject that we're going to approach now. We're going to be talking about dementia and uh, the concept of sundowning. And to do that, we are very happy to have on the show Tipa Snow. She is founder of Positive Approach to Care and also author of Understanding the Changing Brain. And we're going to be having a, a deep discussion about this, Mary. Yes, I. it is something that um, it, it, is, it comes up quite often in conversations with caregivers um, who are um, caring for someone who's living with dementia. And, um, you know, I recently heard of it with my dog, um, I, who knew dogs have dementia and also sundown and um, you know she's been up all night and now I am understanding a lot more um, but I, I want to do a deep dive into sundowning we hear about it quite often it, it is exhausting for caregivers um, so Tipa let's just start with the basic what is sundowning and why does this occur okay so <laughs> we used to truly believe it was simply because as the sun went down people had a reaction to the sun going down. And it turns out, well, yeah, that is a little piece of it because as daylight turns to night, our brains tend to think, well, I'm supposed to leave here and go somewhere. And the place I'm supposed to go to is a safe place. But the main thing is I'm not supposed to be here. This is not where I'm supposed to be anymore. What we now realize is there's also parts of it that have to do with brain chemistry. And as I use up all my chemicals in my brain, I'm running out of chemicals. And so my brain is less skillful, less competent, less able, and I get more easily stressed and distressed. And so the place that used to feel familiar and comfortable isn't. The people that I'm with aren't the people I want to be with. The stuff I'm doing doesn't make sense. And often in that moment, my brain will pull out a card that says, ah, this is what you're supposed to do. This is where you're supposed to be. And this is who you're supposed to be with. And it's fake. <laughs> it truly isn't true, but your brain believes it. So that phenomena of having your brain fritz on you, and I've got to get out of here. I can't stay here. Get me out. And I may not even have as many words as I had earlier. And all I want to do is I'm getting frantic. No, let me out. I can't get me out of here. I've got to go home. I've got my mom. I've got, I've got to take care of the kids. And, and it can feel so, because it's not how I was. And it's, so distressing to a care partner who's trying to, mom, this is your home. You know, whoa, 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 whoa. what are you talking about? No, you can't go. It's 2 a.m. Because this doesn't stop when the sun goes down. Then it goes off and on into the evening. So, Mary, what's your what's your take on that? Because that's, that's my experience after years and years and years. Mm -hmm. Yep, that's it. Those are all really great points and, and definitely how, you know, I, I have 
felt before. Can you talk to us about some of the signs that caregivers should look for that someone is sundowning, you know, signs and symptoms of it and mm-hmm. and things that maybe could trigger in your head, oh, this is exactly what this is, just so, you, you know, caregivers can kind of start wrapping their heads around that. Yeah, so what we're going to start noticing is a change in how people are looking around, how people are sounding and talking and taking in verbal data, or what they're doing and how they're doing it. Or we'll start recognizing disengagement and that repetitive sort of pattern of, so so when am I going to, when I, when can I go home? Mm-hmm. I, I've to notice the disengage and increase in anxiety. Um, so the anxiety starts kicking up. So we start seeing patterns and we want to try to catch it before we get to pacing. Pacing is a back and forth. Mm-hmm. We might see looping where the person will go around and they'll check out and they'll go around, but they're not settled. Or if they can't physically move a lot, we start seeing them using their hands and touching their faces and glancing around and 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 and, and, and not being able to sort of that stuttering speech or no wait, I need to I need to find out something or can I call? I need to call. So this they start to make statements of I need to, I want to, this isn't right. Um, so those are all indicators that, uh-oh, we're, uh, this is no longer feeling like a safe place, a harbor. I'm no longer feeling like somebody who's, who's comfortable. I'm, I'm starting to feel like a jailer or a controller. Um, the person is showing evidence that, uh-oh, we got a problem, Houston. And it's mm-hmm. picking up on that as early as you can. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, at, at early is, is good to start picking up on these things. As someone, as a loved one who is um, who has dementia, starts to get further down in, into the dementia, um, okay. what is some visual cues as a caregiver? What are some of those visual cues you can look for as communication becomes more complicated? Yeah. So what I'm, what I could be looking for is when you ask something or you try to engage, they disengage from you. Mm-hmm. So they don't know, no, leave it alone. Just leave. So you notice a change in tone of voice mm-hmm. or you might notice the rocking and the trying to get up when they haven't been doing that. So you notice a change in um, physical level of not being comfortable or you notice that they're they're doing things with their hands and often the hands and the mouth oh 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 my oh my i've got a mm-hmm. i can't i you know so you see a seeking so seeking with the eyes or seeking with body or not settled um are and sometimes grinding your teeth or or smacking or i i've got a call i've got a i've got a shuffling papers or fiddling folding in an intensity so maybe they folded towels earlier, but now it's creasing and creasing and, and and not watching the TV. And it could be tuning out or really hyper-focused on, do you see that boy over there? He, he need, You need to call the police. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, what are we talking about here? Mm-hmm. So it could be intensity sometimes. That's, that's definitely, you know, one of my favorite things that my grandmother had when she was going through um, some of these things that you're talking about is an activity mat. Um, she had the, the uh-huh. zip, a zipper uh-huh. and a, um, a little handkerchief that was sewn onto the mat and buttons. And um, she was she was a folder. She loved to fold things. Everything uh-huh. was being folded. Uh-huh. There's always little piles of towels around. 
<laughs> Kleenex. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Dirty napkins, whatever she found. But the intensity of the folding will typically go up, like really pressing the seams and, and really, or you can't get her to fold. And normally she would fold, but that's not happening anymore. Mm-hmm. Nope, nope, I'm done with that. And so there's either a not being able to engage or the intensity goes up. And that's usually a really strong indicator. Ooh, we're right on the edge of distress. That is a great point. So what can, before we go to break real quick, I want to touch on this last question. What can you do as these things start to happen to help reduce some of the stress and keep uh, your loved one engaged? Yes. Step one, we need to take a really deep, hard breath and blow it out. (laughs) As soon as we see it, our brain starts going, oh, no, here we go again. We take the breath in, but then we panic with it and we don't let go. Mm -hmm. Okay. It looks like we're about to hit our moment. Ooh, and then that ooh moment where I'm going to come up with something and I've got a, I want a laundry list. I want to come up with at least five on my list and I may want to post them on the side of the refrigerator or in the kitchen in the bedroom so that I have them visibly present for me because in that moment, my brain is already going to a, oh no, 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 <laughs> please don't do this. And instead I need to look and see, okay, so what's my risk? Response, not my reaction, but my response when this is starting to happen. Well, how can I respond in an effective way? Mm-hmm. And step one is breathing. And then the step two is going, oh, mom, or oh, Mary. Now, what do you hear on the end of my, my what was the ooh when I went, oh, Mary. Oh, like freaking out. Pause. Excitement. Excitement, yeah. There's a pause. It's like there's some energy there. Mm -hmm. So it's not a negative energy. It's not, Mm -hmm. oh, Mary, Mary, which tells you, I'm worried. (laughs) Here we go. Or Mary, disappointed. So it's the tone of voice and the energy that you're putting out. And so it's like, oh, Mary. Because what I'm signaling is, oh, I've got something new. And so it draws your, it's called the reticular activating system. It's the part of your brain that's always looking around. Something good, something bad, something good, something bad. And I already know you're moving towards the something bad. And I want to catch you and see if I can bring you to the something good. Oh, Mary. And then I've got to change place, person, or what we're doing, programming, Mm -hmm. or prop. So I've got to make one of my four P's. There's five, which is what are the possibilities, but I've got to think of my P's. I want to think of my P's like, okay, so I'm stuck with me. I'm the only one here. Um, Okay, so we could change places. Oh, hey, Mary, come here. I need your help for just a second. So rather than you being in the same place, we're going to move to a new space. Now, it may just be another room. It may be something, but I've got something set up there to catch your eye. And by moving to a new room, I actually trick your hippocampal area, which is your memory and learning center, mm-hmm. into resetting itself. And that may also be, let's get your coat on. I need to go outside. I want to check on something. We actually go through the outside door and go out of the building that we're in. Because for some people, that's a stronger signal that we're going somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Really good stuff. Oh, Tipa. 
We have to take a break real quick. We're speaking with Deepa Snow. She is founder of Positive Approach to Care and author of Understanding the Changing Brain. And we're going to continue our conversation with her right after this. So grab your coat and come with us. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. This is Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. Joined by Mary Lucas from Transitions Life Care. Here's your host, Jason Kong. Welcome back to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Jason Kong here with Mary Lucas, our guest on the line, is Tipa Snow. Tipa is founder of Positive Approach to Care, and she's also author of Understanding the Changing Brain, and we're having a discussion on sundowning and dementia. And Tipa, just before the break, um, you had given us the P's, the, uh, a bunch of words that start with the letter P. Can you can you go over that again, and we, let's expound on that a little bit more? Yeah, so switching a place, switching a person, like switching people out, switching out programming. What are you trying to do? What is the person doing? So a different activity. Uh, And then the last one is props. What is available, visual, uh, physical, uh, auditory? What are the things, the props that you could be using? What's being used and what could we use? So switching and changing something because what I'd say is what we're trying and what we're doing doesn't seem to be working. That is really, those are very helpful in thinking about how you approach uh, this situation. So talk to us a little bit more about what we can do with these P's. Yeah, so the first one, if somebody still has language and they're still trying to communicate with you, like, listen, I, I I can't stay here anymore. This isn't even my house. I need to get home. I need to validate that I got their message. Oh, wow, so this isn't where you stay. You need to get back to the place that you stay. So this isn't it for you. Wow, and I thought we were staying here. Huh, wow, well, that's a surprise. Mm -hmm. So sounds like here is not an okay place. And it's like, boy, I need to hear that message because it's like, this is your home. Mm -hmm, (laughs) Wait, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? You've lived here for 20, 30 years. Mm -hmm. What are you talking about? And rather than trying to get you to understand this is your home, because in that moment, you don't have the brain chemistry and it's not, I mean, you could try it, but all it does is result often in an argument and more emotion in a negative direction and more of a commitment to, I got to get out of here. Um, so in that moment, I can try shifting things. So none of this looks familiar to you. Wow, that's horrible. I, now, you know, because I thought we were going to stay here today and then maybe go tomorrow to see if you can buy time. But if you can't, then it's, tell you what, let's get your coat on, then let's get out of here. Because I thought this was where we were staying and you're telling me it isn't. That's called validation. So that's the first thing I got to validate. And then I've got to investigate, like will leaving this space help me out? Is that enough? Is just getting the coat on, getting out of the car, going for a ride, is that going to do it? Mm. Or is it something more than that? Mm -hmm. Um, and I got to be willing to try something. 
<laughs> if what I'm doing isn't working, then I've got to try something different. And that's the hardest part for many of us. It's like, but I don't want to go out and get in the car. It's cold. All right, well, let's see what happens when she gets out there and it's cold. And she goes, well, it's cold. And it's like, you're absolutely right. Do you want to wait and go tomorrow? That's a great well, point. Well, I guess. But, I mean, we didn't even pay for this place. Are we going to get arrested? So now I'm back to, oh, you're worried about getting arrested. You know what? I think it is paid for. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it is. Who paid? Well, not you. I think it's gotten paid. It's already covered. Oh, well, good. And that's sort of like, okay. But I don't want to go right back in and start all start right back where we were. I still want to go, tell you what, could you help me a minute? Here, would you wipe this counter for me? And I'm starting to think of things that take, and what we know about human beings when their brain isn't working well is their body needs pressure. Mm-hmm. It needs to do something that's a little heavy-handed. So maybe wiping tables, scrubbing something, sweeping something, running the vacuum, doing something that gives you a sense of push, push, push. Um, pushing outward tends to relieve and release a lot of tension. Um, you can try a massage, which is also another way of, of doing pressure. Um, but it's really important to figure out what soothes this person in that state. Is it a hug? Is it giving them some quiet? Is it giving them music? Is it giving them something to sing or hum or dance to? Um, we've got to be that being willing to be flexible here. Mm-hmm. I can see how that'd be very engaging and, and involving that yeah. involving them in the process. Yeah, and one of the really hard things is for us to look really hard in the mirror and do I have the energy? Is my brain working well enough? And I think sometimes we don't really acknowledge our own vulnerability to like, it's been eight hours already. I don't want to do this right now. And it's like, yeah, so where's your backup plan? Who's your backup plan? Um, and all too often in our current system, we, we do one-on-one and we don't think about I'm human too and I need to go someplace else and do something else for a little bit mm-hmm. um, because I need a break. I just need to breathe and have a break and not have the responsibility because I'm sundowning. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. (sighs) So, you know, one of the hardest parts is to recognize I could use somebody else's eyes on this. I could use somebody else's ear on this, somebody else's take on this because I think I'm at my limit and I've just, I've had enough and I feel trapped, and and so I do what I know how to do, and I feel myself changing. I feel myself using that voice. I I sense myself feeling overwhelmed, and it's like, yeah, that's what sundowning does to the person who cares a lot. I mean, it's a it's a two person phenomenon or a group phenomenon. It's not just one person experiencing it, um, and we can get in the same cycle the person does, which is, oh no, 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 let's not go there. Uh, but pulling back is not going to probably change what's happening. That's a great point. I, I want to touch on real quickly before we sign off here, the support system that the caregiver mm-hmm. could use here. And how can you call on your support to help you during these moments? Yeah, one is to recognize, is this a pattern that's starting to be daily? And if it's a daily pattern, then I need to send up my my help signal to say, at about this time, I'm going to need some different kind of support. Um, 
and this is what I want us to try and to say, if this is happening pretty routinely, then what we're doing in a 24-hour stretch has to change because we can't sustain it. I mean, we're, we're getting to a place where more, more is what I need and it's different as well, but it's, I can't, it's not a quick fix. It's not a one time. It's not, you know, oh, maybe she's got a urinary tract. I mean, this is a new pattern that I want to adapt to. And it may also be that we need to get some expert opinion in here. And so my support may be, maybe I need to look at a medical support. Maybe I need to look at a different social support or maybe an environmental support. Or maybe it's really time to take a look at the whole day and see are we doing too much for too long in the morning and we're running out of gas or is it something else? Um, is the person's pattern shifting or are they missing something in their life? Like the kind of things we're doing isn't, isn't filling their bucket in a healthy way or mine. Um, so it's really important that as we look for support, we, we think big on this because this is a phenomena that can really be all consuming, but it also often signals a bigger picture step back and go, wow, I think it's time for us to investigate what we all need, not just what this person is telling us they need. That's wonderful. Um, Tipa, before we head out today, can you tell us how our listeners can connect with you if they want to learn more about you or how they can pick up Understanding the Changing Brain or learn more about your upcoming book? How can we do that? Yeah, well, we have a website, which is just real simple. It's my name, www.tipasnow.com. Or we also have a presence on Amazon. So if you're curious, you can go on Amazon. And if you put my name in, there's all, all kinds of things that will pop up, including those books. Wonderful. Tipa Snow, founder of Positive Approach to Care and author of Understanding the Changing Brain. Tipa, we love having you on the program because we always leave the show with mm -hmm. some wonderful advice and new strategies that are given to us. We always appreciate your perspective and enthusiasm. Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for doing what you do because it really does matter. Well, thank you for that, and thank you to Transitions Life Care for their continued support of this program, and it's a, it's a wonderful resource for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. We are out of time for today. On behalf of Mary Lucas, I'm Jason Kong, thanking you so much for listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you, a service of Transitions Life Care. It's your life, your care on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF News Talk Traffic. Have a wonderful day. You've been listening to Aging Matters, care and comfort that surrounds you on FM 98.5 AM 680 WPTF. For more information, log on to transitionslifecare.org.